ask you to turn in your Bibles. You can turn to Daniel chapter 11. Today we have come to the end of our study through the book of Daniel. I know this might be hard for some of you, but if you can think back to when we started, way back when, we did not actually begin this series in the book of Daniel. In fact, we started in the book of Genesis. And for many weeks, I laid out before you, as best and simply as I can in this format, a history of God's work in the world. The purpose in doing this was for us to recognize that when we read a book like Daniel, from the Bible we are not reading merely an isolated story. But in fact, the Bible is unique among all religious texts in the world because the Bible tells a cohesive story about our God and what He is doing in our world. And over the course of time, as we saw, beginning with sin, we saw the promise of a Savior, we looked back into the book of Genesis and we tried to see in the Bible what God is telling us, namely that these are not random stories about ancient peoples, but we are reading one story And it is the most important story in the world. And if you would give me a little sappy latitude here, I will say that it is a love story. A love story. Not a story about the kind of love with which humans love one another. If this were a story about human love, it would have been over quite some time ago because we are not nearly this patient, this forgiving, or this kind with one another. But it's a story of God's love. And in this story, a story that includes all of the names we are familiar with from the Bible, from Abraham and Sarah, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, to Joseph and his colorful tunic and his jealous brothers, the parting of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, and so on and so forth. In this story, we see many times where God could have, if he were merely human, would have walked away from all of us. Would have said, surely these people are not worth all of this. And we would have died in our sins. We would have spent eternity condemned to suffering in eternal hell. But God, in fact, does not give up on us in this story because as we read in Romans 3, God is faithful even though all men are liars. You might hear something like that and say, well, I'm not a liar, Pastor. And I speak for myself then and say, I am many, many times over a liar. Both in the individual things that I say and do and have done throughout my life, but also in my commitment to the Lord Jesus, which I have promised Him. Without fail, I will devote myself to Him, and every week, every month, certainly year by year, I make myself out to be a liar with my little rebellions and my sinful acts. And yet here is the picture of God's love and His faithfulness, that He loves me not because I am worthy of Him, but because he has committed himself to loving me, whether I am worthy of it or not. And that's what the story is about. I am not worthy of it. I strive to be. We should seek to live up to the calling to which we've been called as Christians. I want to obey the Bible. I want to follow the Lord. But I routinely fail, and yet God's love has never failed toward me. The Bible says that God was pleased to wound Jesus at the cross. Just think of that for a moment those of you who have children, and try to imagine what the Bible is telling us, that a father was pleased to wound his son like that? Why was God so pleased with what happened at the cross? Well, it was because it was either the cross of Jesus or eternal hell for you and I. It was one of those two. On his way to the cross, Jesus said in John 12, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? Get me out of this. 
I don't want to go to the cross now. Spare me. Rescue me. And he says, no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is the whole point of it. For what purpose? To save a Reggie Osborne? To save you? Now, that's what I mean when I say this is a love story and when it seems very academic, when it seems mired in the details, I want you to remind yourself that every one of these details is precious to the Lord our God who has endured every one of them to bring about this story of redemption and that there is no minute part of this here. There is no discarded part of this. There's no part of this that is not relevant to him. It's his story, what he's done for us. And we are in the book of Daniel, finishing it today. Now, we read this from Daniel, chapter 11, verse 35, last week. This is where we concluded. It says, And some of those of understanding shall fall, to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Now, this verse is about a man named Antiochus. And we covered this last week. It's about an actual Syrian king who lived in the world a thousand, couple thousand years ago. He was a Syrian king from a fractured Greek empire. He did many evil things to Israel. The most significant thing that he did was he took a statue of the Greek god Zeus and he set it up in the temple and he prohibited the worship of the one true living God and he commanded the worship of Zeus by slaughtering pigs and such on the altar of God and anyone who would not get in line among the people of Israel were put to death this is well established historically now Antiochus himself was eventually defeated in what's called the Maccabean revolt in other words there were a people from the Maccabean family Jewish people who revolted and put him down the Jews celebrate this today with the festival of Hanukkah if you ever wonder where Hanukkah comes from it comes from all of this that we're reading about about this king Antiochus and what he did and his final putting away of but in day Daniel 11.35, this verse, there is a shift in this story about this guy Antiochus. You notice these phrases in that verse, until the time of the end, and because it is still for the appointed time. In other words, in verse 35, there is a shift that takes place. Prior to this, we have been hearing about Antiochus and what he will do when he comes, the Syrian king who lived in the Greek empire. But we are no longer speaking of the Greek Empire after this. We're no longer speaking of the man Antiochus. He is not speaking of the time of the end concerning Antiochus, but concerning the Antichrist who will come at the time of the end. Now here's a basic breakdown of Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. The first section of Daniel 11, namely verses 5 through 20, speak of the development of the Greek Empire. You might remember it begins with the Persian Empire being overthrown, and we talked a little about Alexander the Great, the first great Greek king who does this. And then the second section section speaks of Antiochus IV. That's what we covered last week in verses 21 through 35. And then finally, the book of Daniel concludes by shifting its focus to the end of the world. A future ruler who will behave in many ways like Antiochus behaved. It's because of that that we call this ruler the Antichrist. Like Antiochus, he will be against God, specifically against God. He is a false messiah worshiping a false god, and he is specifically against the one true living God and his son Jesus Christ. Now, we read verses 36 through 39 in Daniel 11. If you have your Bibles, 36 through 39, it says this. Then the king shall do according to his own will. This is speaking now of the Antichrist. 
He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. For he shall exalt himself above them all, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. And the God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with the foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and to divide the land for gain. Now, speaking of the future Antichrist in these verses, we see, first of all, that he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. In other words, the future ruler will not be accommodating to religious freedom. This will not be some ecumenical idea where we all come together in a religious melting pot. No, no, no. He will present himself as a messiah, saving the world from its great conflict and struggle and trial, and he will expect the worship of a messiah to be directed toward him and his god. We know his god to be Satan, albeit likely disguised. We also find that he will be particularly antagonizing toward the God of Israel, toward our God. And that makes sense. Uh, It's a reasonable thing to believe now. It wasn't very reasonable back when Daniel wrote this. Remember when Daniel wrote this, the God of Israel uh, did not have a temple. He did not have priests. He was not widely worshipped or certainly known globally. So the idea that some world leader would be specifically antagonistic towards the God of Israel is kind of absurd, but of course, looking at the world today, it would be unthinkable for someone to begin a new religious movement without addressing the God of Israel. Our God, through the work of Jesus Christ and His church, is globally recognized. So, of course, it makes sense that something will need to be said about Him, and this Antichrist will be antagonistic. He shall also prosper, the verse says. And his prosperity is, in fact, a form of God's judgment upon the world. It's a sense of which, okay, you have rejected the Messiah, which I have sent to you, which for thousands of years I have proclaimed to you, whose name has spread across the globe. If you reject the Messiah, then I will give the world a Messiah worthy of them. And it is this Antichrist who brings about the judgment of God on the earth. So here's a summary of what we have so far about the Antichrist who is to come. He will not be an atheist. You know, the idea that, oh, atheism is taking over the world as an ideology, that is not the end state of the world. It's not even a majority stake in our world. No, he will be a deist. He will exalt himself above all gods. He'll not be silent about our God, but he will slander him and he will prosper. Now, verse 37 gives us cryptic pieces of information. It says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you for a second. And I've, I've sought to do this whenever we talk about prophetical things. I'm going to be very honest with you. No one knows exactly what this means. I'm, going to be, I'm being honest with you. I do not feel compelled to provide to you some answer contrived out of my own machinations, sitting in a study and thinking, well, I think this is what it is, and now I'm going to go to... No, I'm, we're not supposed to know right now exactly what this means. 
If anyone tells you they know exactly what this means, they're not telling you the truth. They, that doesn't mean that they're willfully lying. They might be deceived, but they're not telling you the truth. Some have hypothesized that the Antichrist will in fact be a Jewish person. And that's why the idea of the God of his fathers being rejected here specifically as a reference to Israel. But other passages in the Bible indicate that he will not be Jewish. So the language God of his fathers could be translated his father's gods because the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, which can have a plural ending meaning gods depending on the context. Also the statement here that he will not regard the desire of women. It's very disputed. All different kinds of ideas about what that means. Some have said this is about his own sexual perversion. Others have linked this to forms of worship of other gods, which certainly have uh, a feminine aspect to it. And I'll tell you the truth, the undeniable truth, we don't know. We don't know. And that's okay. That's not some big failing on our part. It's not some big problem that we need to go reconcile. We don't know, and that's all right. Guess what? Daniel didn't know either. Well, why do we have it if we're not supposed to know? Well, the prophecy is given to us so that as this thing unfolds in the world, when the Antichrist is revealed, when he comes to power, the people who are alive as it's unfolding will clearly recognize from the Bible what's happening in the fulfillment of these things and they will be comforted and encouraged that their God is in fact in control and the return of Jesus Christ is near. Is near. So... We'll add these to the list of things that we know or might know about the Antichrist from the text. He will enforce a new religious system, not paying attention to other gods, not paying any regard to them, and perhaps there is a sexual perversion. Now, a description of his new God comes to us in verse 38. A God of fortresses. Perhaps better translated as a God of force. Either meaning could be rendered. Let's add that to the list of what we know. The Antichrist will worship a God of power, a God who conquers kingdoms, a God who consolidates rule. And I think there has always been somewhat of an appetite for this in the world. Um, when you think back of all the great empires in the world, I think there has always been a hunger in the world for the idea that if we consolidate power, and if everyone worships the same, and if everyone speaks the same language, and everyone is governed the same way, I think there is the illusion that all of this sameness will bring about an end to conflict. I think you see that in a bit of the tribalism that's unfolding. And, you know, when I was growing up as a child, they said that we should all be colorblind. And now they say that's horribly racist to say that we should all be colorblind. It's the idea of the world trying to reconcile our differences and the idea that if we just didn't have any differences, if everything was consolidated, then we would all be fine. And that's ignoring the real problem, isn't it? Because evil is not merely external to us, but evil is found within us. And if everybody in the world was exactly like Reggie Osborne, there would still be plenty of fighting and conflict because there's plenty of evil in Reggie Osborne to drive all of that. Now, moving on to verses 40 through 45, it says, at the time of the end, and that's, that's how we, we're not talking about Antiochus here. Virtually all commentators agree on this. This is not really a disputed thing. There's a shift from Antiochus to the end. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. There's that sense of a god of force, a god of conquering, a god of fortresses. But these shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, 
and over all the precious things of Egypt also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his feet, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, these verses speak to the great wars and conflicts that the Antichrist will wage and the wars being waged against him. And what we find is that he is largely triumphant until the very end. Again, there are many people who will tell you exactly who all of these armies and nations represent. I would not encourage you to go down that rabbit trail. They do not know for sure. They don't know. I mean, can you imagine a thousand years ago being a Christian person, reading about the Antichrist and trying to figure out, well, who do I think is the king in the north and who do I think is the armies of the south? I mean, a thousand years ago, the whole geopolitical landscape looked entirely different. Whatever answer you were proposing was blatantly wrong a thousand years ago. So that's not the purpose of this. Again, the purpose is so that when this begins to unfold, When all this begins to happen, the people on the earth at the time will be encouraged that God is in control and in fact, the Lord Jesus is nearing his return. That's the purpose. Now, as we see in verse 45, the Antichrist, when he has consolidated power and worship, will set up his camp in Israel. That's what this means in Israel. The very geographical location that people across the globe call the Holy Land, will be the place of this new religious system where he demands worship in the Holy Land. The very part of the world that is constantly afflicted with war will be, in a sense, a testimony to the great peace that the Antichrist has brought. I mean, just think about the audacity of saying, hey, I'm going to establish global rule. Well, where will you put your capital? Perhaps New York City. Maybe that's where we'll put it. Uh, Maybe we'll put it in in London or in in Berlin or something. Where would we put it? No, no, no. I'm so confident in my power. I am so desirous of worship and the elimination of old religious ideas. I think it's going to be right in Israel. That's where I'm going to establish global rule. It'll be something like that. Verse 45 also assures us, though, that his days are numbered. Christ will return. No man or army on earth will save him or spare him from the return of the Lord Jesus. I'll share with you just now a few other passages about the return of Jesus and how it ties to the Antichrist and his judgment. There are many we could look at, but here's one from 2 Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn there, you certainly can. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Here's the Apostle Paul talking about this, and you can see the connection here. Okay, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see now that even the coming of this lawless one, is tied to the idea that the world by and large has at this point rejected the one whom God has sent, the gospel of truth, the one who he sent so that they might be saved. And so they will follow a false Messiah. The lawless one is the Antichrist who will come at the end of the world. So you can see the language here is that he will be revealed. We're not going to go discover him and figure it out. It's going to be a clear revelation of this world leader at the time. It will be obvious um, 
Uh, but as we read here, the Lord Jesus will destroy him. This confrontation is the storyline for Christ's return, the establishment of God's kingdom. This is a judgment upon the world because they rejected the love of truth, the gospel of Jesus, which saves. Here's another passage. This is Revelation 19. Let's read beginning in verse 11. Again, you can turn there if you'd like. It's good to know where these things are. Revelation chapter 19, begin in verse 11. This is not all that complicated to understand. This is what it says. Now I saw heaven opened. This is John seeing about this end of time thing. I saw heaven opened. Behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His head had many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This is a picture of Jesus and his return. You know, Jesus in his first coming is the sacrificial lamb. At his second coming, he will be the fulfillment of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes first to offer salvation to the world, but he comes again to judge, to judge. Verse 15 continues, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with the rod of iron. There's the fulfillment of the, the heir of the, of the line of David who will rule forever and ever, who will sit on the throne. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. There's the assurance of judgment. Evil will be dealt with in a sense of finality here. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can see the clear testimony of God that this false Messiah is not the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but that the one who is returning now, Jesus, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this will be the proclamation. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. In other words, these are all the people who have assembled against God, who have followed this false Messiah against God's people, who have tried to eliminate and exterminate all worship of God. And there's a sense of God's judgment here that now their time is over and there'll be a great fatal reckoning for them at the return of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. Such is the deception of Satan. Such is the capitulation to the idea that this Antichrist is a false messiah, that they will openly choose his side in a conflict, believing in his majestic glory and power, even in the face of a returning Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in all the language of kings and horses and armies here, it may be very easy to get lost in what's happening. For instance, will people actually be riding on horses? I don't think so. I mean, I think that, that John is seeing this vision in a way that's relatable to him in the first century, and he's seeing the image of great war, but maybe they're all on horses. I mean, there's certainly plenty of post-apocalyptic type of scenarios that are presented to us all the time about how technology will go away and the earth is going to be under some sort of destruction, be it environmental or something else, and then we'll be back in the Stone Age. I don't know, but I think it's more probable that God is showing John a revelation of what will come in pictures that John, a man of the first century, will understand. 
Either way, it's very clear that Jesus at his return will bring a real earthly life and death judgment upon the people of the Antichrist's consolidated government and religion. And the Antichrist will be destroyed. Verse 20 it says, Then the beast was captured. With him the false prophet who works signs in his presence. This is the idea of the religious system and the Antichrist. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. You see there's a deception that he deceived them. They believed in his power. They believed in his rule. They believed in the peace and the prosperity that he brought. They believed in his divinity and they were deceived. Deceived. These two are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And so the eternal judgment of the Antichrist will happen immediately and eternally at his return. That's what the last verse in Daniel 11 tells us. No one will help him. There is no escaping the judgment of Jesus Christ. There's no escaping the judgment of Jesus Christ for you. There's no escaping the judgment of Jesus Christ for me. There's no escaping the judgment of Jesus Christ for the Antichrist. In fact, there is a way of peace with God so that our judgment will be counted to the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no escaping it, see. Jesus didn't escape the cross. No, he went there willfully. You and I don't escape judgment. No, we look towards the judgment of the perfect Jesus Christ at the cross, who has bought for us righteousness, who has stood in our place, who has taken our death, who has bore God's wrath. But people who reject the way of salvation will face their own judgment of God. They'll face it eternally. Now back to Daniel 12. This all wraps up rather quickly in the book of Daniel. I know we've been at it for such a long time. It's probably impossible to believe that it wraps up pretty quickly, but it does. It says in verse 1, At that time Michael, we know him, we've seen him, the angel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, it says, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And here we notice the one major important reference that we have fallen back to several times. During the Antichrist's reign, there will be a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever seen, specifically for God's people. This will be a time of trouble, of trial. It's often called tribulation, specifically towards Israel and those who are the people of God. And this is how the Antichrist relates to Antiochus IV, which is what we saw last week. Antiochus was not primarily concerned with his own personal greatness, but he took a personal interest making the worshipers of God, making their lives a living hell bringing them in destruction, trying to eradicate worship. His own time of trouble in the Antichrist will follow this pattern. We saw that in the middle of a seven-year period of peace, the Antichrist will break that peace, and at a three-and-a-half-year mark, he will begin to afflict Israel with the purpose of destroying them and destroying the worship of our God entirely. If you're just joining us this morning, you don't need to take that at face value. You can see me afterwards. But we have carefully laid this out from the Scriptures in previous weeks. You will remember also that this is not unique to the book of Daniel, hardly so. But throughout the rest of the Bible, the same thing is attested to, not the least of which by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, when he's asked by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming? And we see this from Matthew 24. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
dot, dot, dot. You can move down to verse 21. What will happen when you... Well, first he says run, if you want to read the passage. But then he says, then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world. Now, the abomination of desolation, that's the idea of Antiochus setting up the statue of Zeus in the temple of God to be worshipped. That's what is called in Daniel 11, Daniel 9, Daniel 8, the abomination of, de of desolation. The Antichrist himself in Israel will do something similar. He'll prohibit the worship of the one true living God and demand himself to be worshipped. This is an abomination. And Jesus says, when you see that, there will be a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. So Jesus clearly did not see the fulfillment of these things in the old Greek empire, which was passed to him. But when his disciples ask, what will be the sign of the end of the age in your coming? He says, no, this is actually a very future thing, which is what we're seeing here in Daniel 12. Now, Jesus is speaking of the same tribulation or trouble, but praise God, in verse 1, there is also a promise the same promise of Jesus in the New Testament, that despite this time of great trouble, God will save His people. God will save His people. And that is the return of Jesus Christ. That is the battle we read about in Revelation 19. Now, as we finish this out, we want to read beginning in verse 2 here from Daniel chapter 12. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. You ever seen anything like that before? Nope. Thank you, Nicole. Nicole. Brian wasn't sure. He thought, well, hold on. Let me. No, but you right away. Nope, I have not. I've not seen anything like that either. All right. Now, listen to this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. That doesn't mean that those who are intelligent, those who are wise, what is wisdom? I am a sinner. Because of my sin, I deserve God's judgment. God has offered peace through Jesus Christ. It would be wise to take God's peace. You do not have to have some great intellect to come to that conclusion. I'm not going to make it to heaven based on the good things that I've done because I do all these rotten things too. No, if I'm going to have peace with God, God is going to have to do it. What God has done that in Christ? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to place my faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Come back to that at the end. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Here we read of the resurrection. At the very least, part of the resurrection of God's people. Christians, we do not believe in a heaven where we will exist in some ethereal, spooky, spirit-like body forever. This is not Star Wars. We're not floating around like blue ghosts, you know. We're not haunting people's lives. That is not what Christians believe. We're not going to spend eternity like that. All of that is human nonsense and contrivance. And if we're not careful, it will cheapen the promise that God has actually made to us. Because what God has promised is that our redemption not only speaks of our salvation from evil, but also a redemption from the decay and death of our physical bodies. That we will rise in real, eternal bodies. This is the promise of the Bible. 
that though I die, yet shall I live. Not as some ghost haunting people, not as some chubby little angel floating around in the sky. This is all human nonsense. It doesn't come from the Bible. No, the Bible teaches a bodily resurrection. This morning, I laid down on the couch very early with my son. He just turned 13. And he sat there. He's very tired. He's the first one up in the whole house. And he's got this blanket over him. I'm not even sure why he got out of bed. He was just lying on the couch in the dark with a blanket over his head. But he was up. Maybe he just wanted the title. First one up on Sunday morning. He was there. And I come out to the couch. And I see him sitting there. And I sit down beside him. And throws the blanket over me. And he curls into my side, and I hold my son there like that, and I imagine, just turned 13 years old, I imagine, think, I'm glad he's not too proud to do this with his father anymore. I'm glad I can still put my arms around my son. I'm glad I can still run my hand through his hair like this. I'm glad that we still have this, and I thought about the reality that his body is growing, and so is mine, and one day, this will come to an end. One day, this will stop. And I thought of the promise of a, of a resurrection body where I will embrace my son under the fulfillment of all that God has promised me eternally. Eternally. We're not just going to wave at each other as ghosts passing in the night. We're not just going to go haunt the same house together. No, no. He will have a body. I will have a body. And I will be with the Lord. And he will be with the Lord. And I will be with my son. Forever. Forever. Well, God has not promised something ethereal or, or silly or nonsensical, but that's what He's promised, and I'm thankful for that promise. That's why we ought to come to worship on Sunday morning with a sense of gratitude, with a sense of appreciation. That's why we ought to go through the hard self-discipline of laying all the other concerns aside and all the inconveniences and all of the petty things that get in the way. And we ought to look at our family. We ought to look at our brothers and sisters. We ought to look at the people that we love. And we ought to recognize the decay and the destruction of mortal bodies in the flesh corrupted by sin. And we ought to thank God that He has provided for us a redemption from all of this. Now, verse 5, Daniel 12. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the, water, the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Isn't that interesting? We see here, even the angels would like to know, When is this going to happen? And, verse 7, I heard the man clothed in linen, who we went back and forth. This is the one who we went back and forth wondering, is this Jesus, is this not here? That was chapter 11. Who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be fulfilled. Now here we see that phrase again. Some of you are just nodding, oh, not this time, times, nonsense again. I, we already did all of this, but I want you to see it here. It is prominent in understanding these things. This refers to that three and a half year period of time. The period of trouble in other places in the Bible described this even specifically in terms of months and days. If time, times, and a half a time is confusing. So the answer that the angel receives is after this three and a half year period of great trouble that the Antichrist will bring, at a moment of desperation, Christ will return. We see also here that it's when Israel, when the people of God 
are completely shattered. When there is no hope left, when all is lost, Jesus will return. You may say, well, now why? Why? Well, because elsewhere in the Bible we are told that Israel, who has stood in rejection of their Messiah for thousands of years, will reach a point of desperation in which they cry out for him whom they have pierced. Without any other hope, without any other defense, without any iron dome, without any uh, governmental support around them, without any other, they will cry out to the very Messiah whom they crucified, whom they rejected. As they cry out to him in a moment of desperation, so Jesus will save them. Desperation. Isn't that what has caused you, Christian, to cry out to Jesus? Is that not when Jesus saved you? I don't know how one would become a Christian without understanding a moment of desperation. It's a desperate thing to realize that actually I am a sinner. And I might go to hell when I die. So Israel will have a national experience that resembles that. A moment of desperation. These end of the world things will unfold. The testimony of God's, world will, of God's word will remain. The Bible's not going anywhere. And as Israel, staunch in their rejection of this Messiah, begins to see all of this unfold around them, so the scriptures will remain. Being left without any other hope in the world, they'll cry out to the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will win. He will win. That's a great story. Hijacked by a bunch of other stories nowadays. You know, you think of Gandalf coming down a hill or this or that. It's a hijack for all. But, but the true story, the real salvation, is about a real Savior. And He will win. He will save. Verse 8 of Daniel 12. Although I heard, I did not understand. See, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. Daniel said, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, well, get your notebook out, Daniel, and I'll unfold them in incredible detail if you're just smart enough to do all of the internet research yourself, right? Is that what he told him? No. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Again, when will these things come to a perfect understanding? At the end. At the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall have understanding. The wise are going to see these things. The wise are going to understand these things as they unfold. Verse 11, from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of the desolation is set up, there shall be 1,209. Folks, I'm not sure how much clearer this could get. If, you got a pro- if you're struggling with this, I'm not sure how much clearer this could get. There's going to be the abomination of desolation, the worship of this false god set up just like it was in ancient times. And here we have explicitly in the text, from that time there will be, and then we have a period of days described, 1,290 days. It's about 30 days more than three and a half years. And then verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, which is another you know, few dozen days more. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Praise God. Daniel's life was almost done. Go your way. Finish out your life. Do well, Daniel. You're not going to miss anything. You will arise to your inheritance. You're not going to miss anything. Now, first, these 1,290 days, right? 
And also these 1,335 days. You know, it's, 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 it's both of them here. Two periods of time slightly longer than the, the 1,260 days that we've had elsewhere, the three and a half years, the 42 months, etc., etc. Now, I take this to mean that when the Lord Jesus comes and defeats the Antichrist and judges evil, there will be a period of time where he establishes his kingdom, when he judges. And these days, these increased, there's not many of them, it's not like an extra hundred days, these days are going to be the establishment of the kingdom kingdom where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Now, if you have another theory, that's fine, but the Bible doesn't tell us, so it's, it's every bit as good or bad as mine, all right? But there's going to be a time period where those who make it to the inauguration of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will receive blessing. Now, let's see if we can land the plane here, okay? Some of you land, got, they, you jumped off the plane a long time ago. That's all right. We're going we're gonna to we're gonna try to bring it home. How do you process these things as a Christian? Now, this is where we often go off the rails, okay? First thing, we could be afraid. Some people hear all this and they just swat it away. You probably, some of you have your, your spiritual fly swatters out this morning like, interesting, 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 whack! And it's like, I don't want to pay attention to any of this anymore. And off I go back to my kind of, you know, mind-numbing day-to-day thing and it's just out, out the door. That's, other people get very afraid. You're talking about antichrist and death and wars and conflict. And, uh, Christians, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Okay, You can always console yourself with that whenever you feel afraid. It doesn't mean that you're in some great air by feeling fear. Fear is an emotion. It's something we feel. We're human beings. We're going to feel fear, but we cannot live in fear. We must encourage ourselves with the reality that God has given us the very Holy Spirit as a helper that I read about at the beginning of our worship service, and that Spirit does not want us to be afraid. He's not leading us into fear. We can't live in fear. I am not afraid of the Antichrist. I believe he will come. I believe it will be every bit as bad as what Jesus and Daniel say. I am not afraid. Now, and not because, well, I'm a, I believe in the rapture, so I'm not going to be here. That's why I'm, no, no, no. If I'm here, I'm not afraid. The scriptures describe those who overcome the world like this. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And I ask you, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? My life is not in the hands of some world ruler. I am leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. What do I have to be afraid of? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus could take my life from me, could take my money from me, could separate me from my family. I actually believe in the resurrection of the saints to eternity with Christ. I don't have to live in fear of any of that. I actually believe that. It's not so, I'm not standing up here, you know, trying to get by on some mass deception. I believe what I'm preaching to you. We don't have to be afraid, especially not of a mere man. Regardless of whatever else happens, be assured this of the Antichrist. He's just a man. I don't have to be afraid of a mere man. 
Other people hear a message like this and they think about the end of the world. And they think, well, we've got to get prepared. I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know if they're heading to the army surplus store or planning elaborate booby traps in the yard. I, I don't know what they mean by that. Okay, I'm not sure. But this is not Mission Impossible. You're not James Bond. It's not your job to go take out the Antichrist. Jesus is going to do that. Okay? Um, Jesus is going to... And it's not going to be you and me. Jesus is going to do that. And remember, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood anyway. The world may count us as enemies. They may be our enemies. They may hate us. What are we commanded to do? We are commanded to love our enemies. To love our neighbor. To love our brothers. To love our sisters. We're supposed to be a people extending the love of God. Is that difficult in an antagonistic world? Yep. I haven't seen Janet react all service, but she was very quick to nod. That is difficult to love people in an antagonistic world. Yes. But it is no less than what Jesus Christ did. Who at the cross, being found in the form of a man, became obedient to death and looked at the crucifying mob and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is no different than what Jesus endured. He did not love his life more than he loved obeying the Father, doing what he was called to do, loving people. Now, this is not a statement against the military, whether or not you serve. I think I've been on record with this. Serving your country is an honorable thing, provided that you have prayed about this and sought uh, counsel from God's word. This is not about that, but the idea that I need to prepare my, my life and my home for the upcoming endemic, that's, that, that God, is, God is just as in control of your backyard as he is what's going on in Israel. That's how we should process these things. We should have faith in God. That's what we should do. That's the right response. When our children are scared about the future or are unsettled by the world around us, we should tell them our God can be trusted with this. And we should exemplify that. Good luck telling your children that God can be trusted if you live a life that doesn't appear to trust God whatsoever. When your kids are scared, when your husband, when your wife are scared, when the people around you are scared, when your co-workers are scared, when the people you go to school with are scared, we have a true and valid life-changing answer. Our God can be trusted with this. That's not like carrying around a rabbit's foot in your pocket. That's not some nonsensical belief. It's been borne out generationally in history and more important to my testimony, it's been borne out in my life. I can tell you how God has proven himself trustworthy over and over again. Now, I want to Add, when we put our eyes on future fears and overcome by them, we ignore the counsel of Jesus that today represents enough difficulty for us in and of itself. We have a spiritual enemy who seeks our destruction, who is deceptively working in the world around us. Let's get through the next week 
honorably and faithfully before we start worrying about how we're going to survive the end of the world, okay? Let's get through today without sin and dishonor before we start trying to figure out how I'm going to survive a nuclear blast, okay? Jesus said, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's not lose sight. Let's not take our eye off the ball on where the real battle is here. Finally, and we'll just we'll stop here. I promise there's nothing beyond this. We have to have a gospel urgency. Now, if your Bibles are still open to Daniel 12, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. I told you I'd come back to this. Come back to it in closing. In closing. It says in verse 3, And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. See now. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the Great Commission. That's the idea of we're supposed to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Look, I'm not going into any Hall of Fames. I'm not going to have any stars on sidewalks with handprints and things like that. You know, I, All of that glory is both undesirable to me and it's not going to happen anyway. What are we supposed to be doing here? We're supposed to be seeing people move from the kingdom and the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's eternal glory and light. How do you do that? Well, you're going to have to share the gospel. You're going to have to present the gospel. You're going to have to love people in a way that's compelling enough for them to listen to the gospel. You're going to have to have a relationship with people. You're going to have to be hospitable to people. You're going to have to care about what happens to them when they stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. And you're going to not just pay lip service to it. You're going to have to actually care about these people who are going to stand before the Lord. And in closing today, I'll leave you with that challenge. How much do you care about seeing people turn from evil and embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. How much do you care? That's a big question. It's a big question. Think on that today. Think on that this week. How much do you care about what God has commissioned us to be about? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, now I just want to thank you for the patience of your people who have, who have not left in mass, who have endured the very deliberate and methodical teaching not only from a book like Daniel, which is seldom taught on Sunday mornings in local church congregations, but they have also endured since the beginning of the year a methodical approach to trying to line up the history of the Old Testament, which is a history of what you've done in some systematic way, and I'm sure that it has not been easy for them. And I want to express gratitude, Father, for them and for you working in them, that we have made it now to the finish line this morning. And Father, whatever has dissipated from memory, whatever has fallen off, whatever hasn't been retained, I ask that you'll be very gracious to us and remind us throughout the course of the rest of our lives of what your word has said and of what you're doing and of how we fit into that. Father, I ask this not so that we can be intellectually superior to anyone else, but so that our faith, which is grounded in you, might be rooted in something tangible, something which we understand, something which we look forward to, 
something which we believe. Now, Father, I ask that you will bless the giving that your people do so faithfully week by week. And help us to consider how what we give might be put to use for your kingdom and for your glory. Give us strength and wisdom and protect us from the evil one. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.